Hello everybody and welcome back to the Hand Me Up podcast, a podcast where two Zimbabwean women, Ru and Gwen, in the academic space share their journey toward attaining a PhD. In this episode, we are joined by Chido, who is a Zimbabwean woman based in Zimbabwe, sharing her own story of distance learning and undertaking a PhD in the area of HIV and sexual reproductive health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Welcome to the episode, Chilo. We're really happy to have you here. Thank you, Sando. Really, really good to see you. And as you may have all noticed now, it's a bit of a trend with me. Um, a lot of my interviewees are from Arundel. So um, Chilo and I went to the same high school. <laughs> and I think each with each episode, I just feel more and more proud of um, the Arundel ladies, the ladies from the pink prison, despite all our um, difficulties there. So many of us are breaking ground in different spaces. So Really, really proud of you, Chilo, and really glad to have you on our podcast. Okay, so um, before Thank you we, so much. we, I'm really excited. <laughs> really excited as well. I'm excited to hear about your journey. So, um, some of you in our audience may recall we had an, an episode recently with Mandy, and um, she was talking about you know um, her PhD exploring um, sexual and menstrual health, and she mentioned that she had a colleague who put her onto this particular PhD journey. And that colleague was Chido. So we are really pleased to have Chido here. Seems to be a beautiful snowball effect. We're building a community of sisters here. So um, I would like to believe that you went, you've done your PhDs at the same institution, indeed? Yes. Okay. Yes, we have. Fantastic. So um, in a moment, I'll just ask you if you can just explain to us um, your institution and your PhD mm-hmm. title. And if you can also just give us a three-minute spiel about who you are. So anything you'd like to tell us about perhaps your educational background and how you arrived at your PhD journey. Okay. Um, so you've given me three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am Chido. I am born and bred in Zimbabwe. I um, have been working here for the past eight years. And like Pretender just mentioned, I studied my high school at Arundel. And then after high school, I left to study in the UK where I did an undergraduate degree in biomedical science with business, which is a very strange um, combination, but it's something that I really, really um, enjoyed, but also realized that I didn't want to work in a laboratory. And so straight after that, I was like, okay, how do I leave the lab? But I also really wanted to come back home to Zimbabwe. So I moved back to Zimbabwe and I started working on a research project here in Zimbabwe, which is very closely linked to what my PhD was been on. Um, and while I was working, did my master's in epi, which is epidemiology, um, which led to my PhD. But more to Chido the person, I am somebody who loves to talk. I'm somebody I think is always really happy. I have a son who is now six years old. I love to read. I love to write. I love to travel. Um, yeah, I think I'm an easygoing person, but I'm also a bit of an uptight person because of the Arundel influence. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's all about me. Yeah, and um, thank you very much about that. I think one thing I might um, point out as well is following you on Twitter. You are a very animated person and your tweets always bring me joy, <laughs> especially about your son. Um, he seems like a super intelligent young human and you've done a great job with him, just you know, looking from a distance. So just a little bit of something for the audience. And I think the Arundel thing, the uptightness, it does, you know, <laughs> 
it's almost in, inbred now. <laughs> but it, it lends itself well to certain scenarios where you do need to have a bit of that mm-hmm. seriousness. It does lend itself well. So, yeah. Thank you. And um, also interesting to just hear about your background and your undergrad um, and how that has led you to your particular area. So um, perhaps if you'd like to detail a little bit more about what you studied um, in your undergrad and your master's and um, if there was mm-hmm. anything, if it was a module that you undertook that may have swayed you to, mm-hmm. to go on this particular journey or a life experience that may have you know swayed you to explore what you now do for a living. Okay. Um... So without going into too much detail, I think even when I left and like I knew that I wanted to work in the health sector within Zimbabwe, I knew that like this is something that I wanted to really um, make a, a, a domain that I wanted to make a difference in, a domain that I wanted to contribute in. And like before I left um, Zimbabwe for university, while I was still trying to figure out when to go and what to do, my mom had a stroke. Um, and I think, you know, trying to get healthcare for her then and you know how much it costs us and the little the few options we had is one of the things that I was just like okay yeah this is meaningful this is important mm-hmm. this is the work that I need to do so um I, I then did biomedical science in the UK and it was very lab based and I think at that point in time I realized I don't want to be in a lab I like people I like to talk probably like what you think that I'm quite animated <laughs> And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to Zimbabwe where I met my now boss and mentor, who is Professor Rashida Faran. Um, And I said to her, like, I just need to get out of the lab and I want some kind of experience. And she was running a project here in Zimbabwe on HIV testing for children and adolescents in clinics. And so I started working on that project. And I think it's the work that, and that project was running in high-density suburbs in Harare. And I think... That was probably the, the pivotal moment. I think starting working on that project was like the pivotal moment for my career because I really enjoyed going to work. Like, no one could tell me anything. I was so excited in the morning. Um, I felt that I was really making a difference in people's lives because I would see patients every day. I would see children every day in the clinics. And um, it was very tangible. And so it was at that point that I made the decision to study EPI which was going to allow me to actually do my own research studies, but also, um, you know, get additional skills because I knew I didn't want to use the skills that I had gotten in my undergrad in the same way that a lot of other people would use them, which is working for sort of a pharmaceutical company or um, working in a laboratory setting. Fantastic. So yeah, that was my moment. Mm. No, no, I, I, I'm really enjoying listening to your journey and how um, the people we meet along the way influence what we end up doing and how, you know, you may start off on a particular journey thinking this is my passion, but um, our life experiences and encounters mm-hmm. also, you know, sway us in different ways. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to Nicole Chimbetete's, um episode, um, which was, a, I think, mm-hmm. the first one in the season. She also talked about how um, her dad's um, um, health uh, condition at the time also influenced her. Um, to study what mm-hmm. she eventually um, decided to do for her PhD journey. So there are those, you know, similarities and overlaps in how, you know, our life experiences have shaped our um, current journeys. So it's quite interesting. So, I mean, this um, leads us into our next question, um, which, you know, um, I wanted to ask a little bit about mm-hmm. how long your program was. But before I get into that, to our audience, Chilo recently um, defended a viver and she is now fully a doctor. So um, I'd just really love to take this opportunity to say congratulations. 
and well done because I know that is no small feat. <laughs> How is it feeling basking in the glory Thank of it you. all? <laughs> Strangely, I'm going to say this to you mm-hmm. uh, and everybody who's listening. Strangely, it felt very, you know, when, you, when you're running up to it, you're really excited and you're like, I can't wait for this to be done. I'm going to, you have all these plans. And when you're done after something that you've been, you know, working on for years and years and years and something that's the center of your life, I felt a little, I don't think empty is the word, but like a sense of loss, like it's mm. gone now. My, my baby that I had been nurturing and taking care of is now, you know, not part of me anymore. Um, and, and, and like, what am I going to do almost? <laughs> um, and then I think afterwards you do feel a void because mm. it is something that's taken up a whole lot of your life. Um, and then you start having to find yourself again because a lot of what I had done during my PhD was, you know, my PhD. And now I'm like, okay, now I have to rediscover um, what to do at all this time, what to do with my mind. Um, yeah. So to answer your actual question, my program was four years. So I did my PhD part-time, which meant that I worked as well as doing a PhD, um, but it took me four years to finish the, the program. Wow, that is epic because um, for a lot of people, full-time even, they go into four years. So to do it part-time four years, that is massive. You know, um, I think when I did my PhD, those who were doing this part-time were on a six to eight-year mm-hmm. trajectory. So to do it in half the time whilst working full-time, those are some boss moves. So congratulations <laughs> to you. <laughs> wow. Where were you getting the times whilst being Malachi's mom and doing everything, superwoman things, you know? It, it, was, it was crazy. I think... I'd come back sort of to my boss, who was my PhD supervisor. Mm. And also I was really fortunate in the sense that the project that the project that I worked on was also my PhD project. So how I came about to doing a PhD is um, at the end of the, the, the first project that I mentioned, which was in clinics in Harare, um, my boss um, told me how she had funding to run another project and wanted me to be the coordinator for that second project. Um, and then I was like, oh, great, a job, like job security. That's all I really wanted, money for food. Um, but then she says, you're going to be doing all the work. Why don't you just do a PhD um, uh, on that same project? And so um, I registered for a PhD. And so that allowed me to concurrently run the project, which is really hard, um, and also do a PhD on the project, which is somewhat easier because, I didn't really have to separate work and PhD because they were kind of the same thing. Mm. I did have to be intentional about the PhD because it's very easy to focus on work, 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 and not actually focus on the PhD, which is writing and academic academic stuff. Um, And like you said, a whole lot of stuff that I then had to learn in the PhD process was how to balance life. Like when I started my PhD, Malachi was two. and and I had to go to London um, for several months at a time, and it meant leaving home and leaving him behind. And then even when I'm here, I think anyone who's done a PhD would tell you how often it means working through the night. It was always like, you know, you're at work during the day, you come back from work, you spend a few hours with your child, then he goes to sleep, you work through the night. So it was intense, and, and I had to learn to be intentional about rest. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like I said, it consumes you. And, and at some point, to stop yourself from breaking, you kind of just have to step away. 
Indeed, and it almost assumes your identity at a point because I'm um, going back to what you said earlier. Exactly. When when you finished, you know, you felt like, okay, what do I do with all this time? And I felt the same mm-hmm. um, because I felt like, okay, for I did mine in three and a half years full time, and mm-hmm. it was you know, my identity for a long time. Yes, I had a social life. Yes, I worked part-time as an assistant lecturer at the time, but my life was consumed by this thing. And, you know, some people have likened it to, you know, um, almost like, you know, carrying a baby. I've I've, I've never carried one. But, you know, it was like, okay, now I've given birth to this, you know, proverbial baby now, mm-hmm. and I've almost handed it over to somebody else because it's not mine anymore. It's gone. Yeah. You know, what do I do with it? And then even the journey of, okay, how do we then, chop up the, uh, you know, the, the PhD into publications. I was so precious about mm-hmm. every single thing that at one point my, you know, supervisors then who are now my mentors had to almost talk me down, you know, and just say, mm-hmm. you have to let it go. And you also have yeah. to be open to other research areas. You're done. You've left that. Leave it be. And then start looking at other things. <laughs> it's okay. You know, but now mm-hmm. when I look back at it, I'm like, okay. Um, I mean, it's been a couple of years now. So I'm like, oh, I, 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 I sometimes laugh at myself at how obsessed I was with it. Because now, you know, even just allowing myself weekends at the beginning was such a struggle. And now I can't even imagine working on, on a weekend. I tell myself, exactly. oh, no, never, could never be me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, just those little similarities. But I think the research at Bitterness just remains alive. Um, I'm on annual leave today. I was on annual leave yesterday. And I spent, you know, my annual leave just doing research. Because there's that part of me that still wants to be in touch with my work, that still wants to explore the area. Yeah. You know, the Olympics for me are coming around. My area is mega sporty fans. So I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. what is going on? Um, what impacts are there, you know, with the virus and all of that stuff? So there's always that desire mm-hmm. to to remain plugged into your topic, regardless of you finishing the journey. Yeah. 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 Um, so, mm-hmm. so, yeah, that was a bit of a distraction from me. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so um, before we go into perhaps the, your faculty and your discipline, um, would you mind sharing mm-hmm. your organization or institution that you did your PhD at, um, how you arrived at that institution, so selecting it, whether you were funded, partly funded, mm-hmm. self-funded, um, and as you mentioned, um, you did your PhD through quote-unquote distance learning. You were in Zimbabwe, but would also spend months at a time in, in mm-hmm. London, the United Kingdom. So if you could walk us through mm-hmm. a bit of that, I'm pretty sure there are some people who might mm-hmm. be interested in that as well. Okay, um, so I did my master's, both my master's and my PhD at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, um, and the two are quite interlinked. So like I mentioned, when I was studying my undergraduate, undergraduate degree in the UK, I knew I wanted to do a master's, um, and I did also want to do it in the UK, but because of funding um, through my family, it just wasn't feasible, and I came back home. So one of the first things that I did to my boss so that, you know, I, I want work experience. I want to diversify from that, but I also do organization that I still work for here in Zimbabwe, but was also working for at the time, the Biomedical Research and Training Institute has an affiliation with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And so at that time, my boss said to me, oh, you know what, you can actually do a master's program. So um, in 20... 15, I started a master's also via distance learning with um, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And when I finished that master's, that same sort of um, collaborating partnership between CRTI and and LSHTM was available for me for my master's. And what that meant is that I only paid 50% of the fees. I think anybody who's ever tried to do a PhD will tell you about 
you know, how expensive they can mm. be. Um, we often do them when we're sort of have responsibilities, we're more mature. And so it's like, how, where do you get the funding for that in addition to trying to care for a family? Um, so I had this 50, 50% off for fees. Um, and then actual funding for the project is um, another big thing. Um, and I was fortunate that, like I mentioned earlier, my um, boss had received a, a huge grant to, to, to do this research. And so by virtue of working on it, the project was already funded. I was salaried. I had a job. Um, and my fee was 50% off through this collaboration. And so it was a good deal for me. A lot of people who advised me at the time actually said, you know what, you're young. Something that I don't like to get. But they said, you know, you're young um, and you have this fully funded sort of PhD in front of you, almost fully funded PhD in front of you. This is a great opportunity to take because funding is often something that's really hard to come by. Um, and so that's how I ended up at the school. I, I, I didn't know at the time how prestigious it was. I I don't often pay attention to things, but like when people, when I, you know, physically went there um, at the end of my master's and as I was going to the city, I was like, wow, this place is amazing. Um, you know, I, I didn't know I needed to be there. <laughs> yeah. No, no, indeed, it is a prestigious um, university and to have been able to get that funding and access to that relationship, it's really, really amazing. And I think this goes back to the idea of, you know, these relationships that we build, the mentors that we come across, you know, and um, I think we discussed it a few episodes ago with Nyasha Gondora, you might remember her, her as well from Arundel. you know, the idea of needing to leave a lasting impression when we meet people because you never know when they're going to come in handy. So, you know, you're working in this organization. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you said your boss had access to this funding. I mean, they could have easily said, no, I need I need to be selfish with this funding and do something else. But they availed that money to mm -hmm. enable you to complete this particular project and look where you are now. So it's just I think to our audience, it just speaks to that whole idea of aligning yourself with people to people that can help progress mm -hmm. your career. And wherever you are, just always do your best because you never know when and how those people may um, help you along your journey. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I think I, maybe just one thing I would add is through my career and with my PhD that I think it's important to be educated, but like you're saying, people really make all the difference. Mm. Um, if mentors, if you have a supervisor who also just happens to be your mentor, that can really help you move forward in, in, in your career, in your PhD, and adapting it afterwards. A PhD is very different from a master that you can almost wholly walk away, but also a PhD can really set you up in a in a in a in a field that you're passionate about and, and, and creating those relationships even while you study um, with sort of people who are well advanced in the in the field uh, is really, really helpful when you step out of it at the end. And I've actually in the few months that I'm post PhD have seen the, the impact of people. Mm, indeed. And that idea of networking, I think I've mentioned it time and time again, that um, networking, networking is so important um, and building relationships because one of my supervisors was one of my master's dissertation supervisors. And then she plugged me onto mm. my, you know, PhD and then told me the scholarships <laughs> apply. And then, you know, she yeah. put me in rooms that I would have never been, you know, had the opportunity to be in dragged me along to conferences that I would have never had the confidence to speak in front of, you know, et cetera. 
And at those conferences, I met people who eventually were on the other side of a panel when I needed a job. And, you know, all of those things, it's Mm -hmm. incremental gains, but it's important. And when I look at it now, a lot of those people are still in my career spaces in one way or another. And it's just really, really important to put yourself out there. Go to conferences if you can. Um, Use the opportunity to speak or present work if you need to. Um, Just be in front of people. Ask people questions. Be curious. Be inquisitive. Mm -hmm. I think we've even talked about, you know, on this podcast, (laughs) sending blind emails to to people that you perhaps... um, whose work you admire. Mm-hmm. So if it's Chilo that you, you know, you, you've come across and you know that she does work in a certain area, send her an email. I always say be polite. I think we've talked about this as well in this episode, how to structure yeah. an email because um, <laughs> we, we've talked about uh, some of the funny emails we've received. Be polite. Ask. Curiosity goes a long way because you just don't know who mm-hmm. might be able to plug you. Chilo may have access to, you know, um, funding or might have access to scholarships, et cetera, that you may not know of or somebody else who can help you along on the journey. Mm-hmm. So I always say it's important to network. So that's that's really um, interesting to hear from you as well. And I think this brings me to perhaps an exciting area around um, how did you identify your supervisors? Uh, how was your supervisory team built? Did you have two two supervisors, three, or how did that go? Okay, I think it's quite similar to to what you described, but probably I, I had a long-standing relationship with my supervisor. So I'll tell you the long version of the story, just to add, um, you know, some spice to what you're talking about, about mentorship and networking and how people are important. Mm. So while I was doing my undergraduate degree, I went to a church in Newcastle, and there was a family in my church. They are from Belgium and Nigeria. Um, the, The husband is from Nigeria, the wife is from Belgium. And when I was coming back to Zimbabwe, they actually said to me, um, we have a friend in Zimbabwe um, who we'd really like you to meet when you go back. She's a doctor, um, and her name was Dr. Sunanda Ray. Um, and when I came back to Zimbabwe, I did that whole random email to a random person. Hi, my name is Tito. I'm back in Zimbabwe. I'm looking for a job. I came back without a job. Um, I'm looking for a job. Um, I got your 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 number from you know the, the Opalabi family in the UK. And um, I remember meeting up for coffee with her at, um, I don't know where your audience is from, but anyone who lives in them would know, um, uh, what's it called, Cafe Nush mm-hmm. at, at um, Avondale. So I met up with her and she says, okay, you know, have you tried applying to such and such places? Um, and I said, I really have my eye on this institution, which is the Biomedical Research and Training Institute, because they're doing research and I, I think I would like sort of working in that field. Um, and she says, oh, I have a colleague um, who works there. And so I sent, she, she sent a linking email between me and the colleague. Um, who is Professor Rashida Farrand, who was then my boss at the time. So that's how I, I met up with her. And strangely, when I went for an interview, she also studied in Newcastle. So it's a small world. Again, coming to your, you never know mm. who's going to open the door for you. Um, where the, the different corridors that you pass in, I think, like you mentioned, I'm going to be active on Twitter, but again, that's a space where I've presented in, um, in meetings and stuff, and people are like, oh, I know Chido from Twitter. um and so that's how i met um rashida and for my master's so she's my primary supervisor for my phd 
So for my master's, I did uh, secondary data analysis of the project that I was working on at the time, and the statistician based at LSHTM, um, Dr. Vicky Sims, was my supervisor for my um, master's, and she's a statistician. Um, and I worked really closely with her for my master's, and when it moved on to my PhD, the both of them then became my PhD supervisors. Um, they're two very different people. Um, you know, one is really hardcore, like, get the work done. And um, the other one is very much like, what do you need to do this? How can I support you? And so I had a good balance with um, two people for my PhD that I had known over some time. I know people meet their supervisors in different ways, but for me it was more organic and they, they, they have seen me grow over several years and then walked through the PhD process with me. I then had a third supervisor, a lot of supervisors, um, who um, was based in Australia. And she came in to support me with the qualitative component of my PhD. So after doing my master's, I was very quantitative. Mm. Um, and then my PhD really forced me to learn a new skill. And so I had um, this amazing woman who I met in person once <laughs> on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, and then worked with for almost two years remotely. Um, and so that, that made up my, my, my supervisors for my PhD. Wow. I mean, your story is really, really different. I don't think we've had anyone on the podcast or myself or Gwen. We've had a supervisor that's in a whole different, um, I mean, Australia, that's far. That's a totally different area, to- totally different continent, yeah. institutions, etc. How did that come about? Um, was it was it a recommendation from your other supervisors or? So I had a rough ride when it comes to the qualitative part of my PhD mm. because when I started the first, I, like quantitative is my strength and I was very happy doing that. It was good ground. Yeah. Um, and then when I did what we call an upgrading, which is a year into your PhD, you have sort of an evaluation. Like, like a transfer. My, um, mm. Yeah, my examiners said, you know, you need to grow um, and you need to go deeper. So one of the ways you can go deeper is to do qualitative research. Um, and I think at, at that point in time, my my third supervisor, which is Dr. Sarah Benet, um, had an affiliation with LSHGM, but she had now moved to work in Australia. Mm-hmm. And she had also been working on some projects with my now supervisor, with my other supervisors. And so... A lot happened. Um, there was chaos. I fought it for a while, um, and and then I, I had a number of changes in the process. So this is also a long story when it comes to PhD experience. But I was initially supervised by somebody else, who then left the school, um, and then Sarah came in a bit later. And how we made it work, I think, it's really important. And I've been very fortunate to have very dedicated supervisors. Um, Rosita is very busy. She is doing everything. She's doing HIV research, sexual health, bone health. She's running the, the party COVID ward. She's lecturing at LSHTM. She's helping, you know, with HIV in Pakistan. But if I text or send her an email, she will drop everything and say, what do you need? Mm-hmm. Um, Vicky is the same, and so is Sarah. They were very um, supportive of the research and, and made themselves really available. So Australia was a different time zone, but she would literally say 
any day if you want us to have a call at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. Um, and so we had weekly calls um, at 7 a.m. my time with her. And we made it work. I, I've literally seen her once. <laughs> um, but we published together um, and we spoke every day for a really long time to, to sort of teach me qualitative research um, for, for work that had sort of fallen apart, actually. Yeah, that's. I think there's a lot there to unpack and unpick that I'm really excited about and interested in. So I hope I won't forget the different points, um, particularly, you know, your relationship mm-hmm. with your mentors and your supervisors. That is really, really important. And I think we stress on this podcast, you know, how important it is to have a good team that understands you, that is there for you. You know, how you talk about, you mm-hmm. know, your supervisors being in a space where they will drop anything and everything to to be there for you. But that doesn't just come, you know, from nowhere. That also comes because mm-hmm. they realize that, okay, this particular student is committed to the project, is committed to the journey themselves. If you were just one of those, you know, uh, they, would, they wouldn't do the same either. They, would, they saw potential mm-hmm. in you. So that also goes back to your passion, your drive. Um, are you willing to be flexible and malleable when you're needed to, you know, to step up? Mm-hmm. And also the challenges in terms of um, supervisors leaving halfway through the journey, that is an important yeah. one as well. I was fortunate enough I didn't get to experience that, but I remember seeing some of my friends, um, their PhDs fell apart altogether. Some dropped off the journey because mm-hmm. they just could not recover. And there's something to be said about, you know, um, are you married to your supervisors or are you married to the project? Because you still need to be able to continue the project yeah. in spite of your supervisory team moving uh-huh. on to wherever they're mm-hmm. going. And then I think the other element, um, the research methods. So I, I hope we can pick up on these elements um, and discuss them each individually, <laughs> is the research methods. And um, I just really loved how you talked about how you found qualitative um, um um, approaches challenging because most times people look down on qualitative researchers and qualitative approaches. Um, I myself am a, a qualitative researcher through and through, always been one um, at master's level, PhD level. I looked at nar- narrative inquiry, so quite the thorough qualitative, um, you know, individual. And mm-hmm. that's my strength because I think um, I'm less of a scientific thinker in that way, as in I don't like um, mm-hmm. quantitative stuff. I've never liked mathematics, stats, etc. That's I had to learn, like you, I had to do a course whilst I was on it because my supervisor said, you're not going to finish this if you don't go do it. So um, Mm -hmm. I had to learn. It's really, really stretched me. But qualitative is my, you know, that's my um, lane. So to hear somebody else talk about, you know, qualitative can be challenging and also that your supervisors encourage you to grow through doing qualitative research. That is exciting. So I think maybe what I would like Mm -hmm. to know from that is, did they then encourage you to use a mixed methods approach with qualitative and quant, or did you still stick to quant, but um, just asking you to think in a more, you know, how qualitative makes you a bit more critical, makes you, you know, unpack the the, the detail in more depth and richness, et cetera. Um, Okay, forgive me. I'm going to go back. Sure. (laughs) Highlight something that you said, and then I'll Mm. I'll, I'll come back. Like the, the, the part that you said about, you having to be proactive. I think the difference between a PhD and a master's is that with a PhD, it's really a lot to do with you. Mm. Um, like if you don't reach out to your supervisor, I think because they have so much going on, they will only come back to you after two or three months mm-hmm. to be like, oh, I haven't heard from you. Is everything okay? But you have to put in the work yourself. It has to be something that you're very passionate in or, or and something that you're willing to get your hands dirty about because um, 
until you take prerogative, no one is actually going to say you have an assignment due tomorrow. Yeah, they've got their PhDs. So yeah, that, that's one thing. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why both my supervisor, my, my main supervisors, Rashida and Vicky, are quantitative. Mm. And, and so for a while, and I also had a mental block when it came to doing the qualitative that it took me a really long time to get into it. And, 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 and for a long time, it really suffered. And finally, when Sarah came in, we had to have a difficult conversation about how I was going to approach qualitative research. And doing PhDs in the UK, you don't actually have to do courses. They're not really, but one of the things that Sarah said is you, you, you can't do this without training. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people do go into PhDs and struggle because you're not equipped. So I actually realized that you're probably petrified because you're not equipped. You've been a quantitative researcher for the last, I don't know how many years, and now somebody's saying half of your PhD has to be qualitative. It's scary, and mm. you don't have the tools to do it. So I had to go to the, to, to the school. I had to do, um, I think I went for three months to do courses, and then that reinforced um, my PhD. And, and like, in the end, um, to answer your question now, um, I ended up doing a mixed methods PhD. So I did a PhD by publication, which I think was a true, true blessing. So I published throughout the entire PhD mm. process. Um, so when it came to submitting my thesis, I just had to put my papers together, do like an introduction and a discussion. Um, but I was able to to combine the, um, the quantitative with some quality. So I, I was able to explain a lot of the quant data with qualitative methods and bring those two together to understand my topic in a more comprehensive manner, which was really eye-opening for me because I was like, oh my God, it makes sense now. Like, the reason why people were not bringing their children to get tested is because they're afraid. Um, and the way we can help them with this fear is um, through encouraging them, supporting them, being present and engaging with them a few times so that they feel safe. So it was just amazing that in the end I was able to to, to present both. Um and it was also really good that I, I now came out of it a mixed methods researcher um, rather than, you know, coming out of it the same chido that went into a piece mm. was really comfortable and happy with statistics and can do all these complex analysis. But understanding the process behind um, why people do the things they do was really, really beneficial. Yeah. And I really like that element about the why, because... Um, a lot of the unknowns in the world sometimes require conversation and, you know, mm-hmm. it's the things that numbers can explain and numbers can only go so far. Well, at least that's how I see the world because I'm a qualitative researcher. So mm-hmm. that might be a bias at somebody else out there might um, challenge my view. But, um, you know, when you get to speak to someone, have a conversation with them and, you know, there's something about, you know, how you set the scene for a qualitative conversation, um, how you allow somebody to feel comfortable to just share their story you may go in there and you tend to get a lot of unsolicited information that you had not, you know, predicted or projected. And that may change the course of your, 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 your direction. I think for me, a lot of my PhD was a lot of unsolicited information. I had interviews that went into two and a half hours where I just allowed it. And the information, you know, let's say the first hour or so was just stuff that I just don't even use. And the gold came toward the end when they started unpacking some detail where you're like, oh my goodness. I hadn't even thought of that. And they steer you into a direction 
as you were saying, exactly. you, know, you got to understand the fears and then the nuance in the fear, the why and why that fear or the stigmas that may exist, which numbers can't get out. You know, numbers can eventually quantify those fears, you know, in terms of, okay, we had X amount of people who are scared, but the exactly. why or how we get to knowing that fear is something that needs to be quantified requires a conversation, right? So, um, yeah, I, I'm a big advocate of mixed methods um, research. Mm-hmm. I am actually working on a paper that I want to try mixed methods research because I also want to challenge myself. Mm-hmm. I've never really um, gone down the um, yeah. um, quant approach. And as much as I did an SBSS course, which my supervisors kind of encouraged me and pushed me to do. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I, and there was a, <laughs> there was a competition at um, uh, MP3 competition. So, you know, those three minute presentations. And I remember winning some mm-hmm. Amazon mm-hmm. vouchers during my PhD. And actually the first thing I did was buy SBSS books because I wanted to learn. And so I feel like I want to stretch myself. Yeah. And I want to do that. So with this particular paper I'm working on, I really want to try to do a bit of quant and then piggyback a bit yeah. of qualitative to see where, you know, maybe there are gaps there that I've been overlooking. But yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can get carried away as well. I'm, I'm a talker, so I try. I have to remind myself for tennis on a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me <both of> us. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, I, I get very excited about research methods. So... Do you mind um, perhaps explaining a little bit more about how you went about your data collection or um, your sample size, what you did to arrive at your um, conclusions? Okay. So, um, like I mentioned before, I had a set decision um, as part of my um, advisory committee and, and one of my supervisors, so that was really helpful. Um, I'll take a step back. So, my, my, my study was looking at, it was quite complex in the sense that it had two stages to it. Mm. So I was um, evaluating a targeted HIV testing strategy for children and adolescents, and it was targeted in the sense that um, we wanted to identify children living in the household of people living with HIV. And these are people who are already known to be HIV positive, who had children who had never been tested or who had been tested a really long time ago. And so there was sort of a two-tier approach where we were in the clinic um, and would offer, um, you know, these people to have their children tested and somebody would say, I have five children. And then we would try and find ways to test those five children. So there were three options that were available in my study. So they could either bring the child to the facility to be tested or a community health worker could go to the house um, and, and test the child or we could give the the caregiver or the parent an HIV child. And so when it came to my outcomes, of course, my primary outcome was the number of children that unpack it. I also had to understand, you know, what are the index characteristics? So that the first person that we found at the clinic, um, and then some of, the, uh, some of our findings are that, you know, women are more likely to get their child tested than males, um, you know, so, Arriving at my sample size was based um, on the number of children that we expected to test and also the number of children that we expected to find HIV positive. Um, and there's a whole long story there about, you know, your research not bringing what you expect, but your research also being meaningful mm. in its own way. So we really thought that this public strategy would help us identify a lot of children um, and I, I said this to um, young people that I'm mentoring that, like, would you believe that I did all of this work for all of these years 
um, and only identified 39 children. Like, it's crazy. Like, <laughs> it's like, what a lot of time spent to just, you know, get, like, we did this for a year in 12 clinics. I had research assistants, a lot of money, and a lot of time went to it only to identify 39 children, mean. right? Um, but um, one of the things that I now know is that the impact of my research is, you know, really wide in the sense that, um, you know, this testing strategy, while we identified 39 children in the entire cohort of the 9,900 indexes that we screened, only 500 children were known to be positive. Mm. So adding 39 to 500 is big. Um, you know, knowing that the strategy doesn't work is big. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and publishing that, you mm-hmm. know, the other thing is you think, oh, like, is this worth public- publishing that in high impact journals? Um, my, my, my main PC paper was published in the Lancet HIV. And you're like, yeah, 39 children. It still made it to the Lancet, right? Yeah, no, but you're also um, changing the, the trajectory of how future researchers will go about things because now people are going to map exactly. your approaches because people have been mapping this, you know, previous approach, which perhaps doesn't work in certain areas. I always say it might work exactly. in a Western world context. It might work, as you said, I think you mentioned Sri Lanka and other places, but where maybe in the sub-Saharan context, that might not work and there are new interventions that are required to identify something. Absolutely. So that's that's a, ma- a major contribution alone. And the process, right? Mm-hmm. And just, you know, publishing so that people understand the process, what went into the it. The hurdles and um, everything. Like, mm. Exactly. And then I think the other thing that was a surprise for me as well, and I, and I, I think, you know, other people who've done PhD might get it, is that there's the smaller components of the PhD can also have really high impact. So, like I mentioned, one of the things that we did was give caregivers um, HIV self-test kits to test their own children. And we also, um, for my PhD, validated the self-test kit for children. And that led to WHO guideline changes. Um, so now, you know, the self-test kit can be used for children. And also because of COVID, um, you know, we found evidence to show that parents can test their own children so they don't actually have to come to facilities where there's lockdown and all of these restrictions. So, Shido, can I stop you there? I'm, I'm, I'm like, you just threw that in and you remained so calm and humble. Excuse me. <laughs> what? You did work that managed to influence <laughs> WHO to change their policies. Can we just bask in that a little bit? Like, yeah. pat yourself on the shoulder. <laughs> that is massive. When people go back and read that, your name is there. That is not a small feat. It is. That is like, I've got goosebumps right now. That is not a small feat. I don't know if you feel yeah. like, you know, maybe, I think sometimes when you're so close to the project, you don't realize the impact you've had on something. And maybe the, the impact may not be immediately obvious, but this is going to go far. I mean, yeah, you talk about, yeah, it was just 39 samples, but look at what that 39 has managed to influence. And not just in Zimbabwe, it's going to be everywhere. Wow. <laughs> it's that, that you, you, whatever you're doing, I think the other part of like doing a piece is you don't, Sometimes you feel like you can't see the impact of your work. Mm. Like there were times that I asked myself, "Does this really matter? Does anybody actually care?" Right? Yeah. Like, what difference does this make? You're slaving. You're trying to write these writing papers is really hard. I mean, it's it's a laborious process, right? Um, I think it's even harder than a PhD because PhD has to unpack a lot, whereas writing a paper usually have five thousand to ten thousand words, and to put all of that, condense it all, and make your point 
like that it's to write succinctly especially being a Zimbabwean person where we are very descriptive it can be very hard <laughs> mm. yeah but like that all that work and in in your small corner you know it's like I had a, a team of six people you can actually make a difference mm. and and, and the, the point of a PhD is to contribute to academia right yeah. and anything that you do even if the result that you like we thought we were going to get high yields and identify lots of children we didn't but it made like you're saying a very big impact there are three there are three contributions there yeah because you've got a contribution exactly. to policy there that's already evident contribution to methodology because you managed to bring about this you know mixed methods approach and also contribution yeah. to to to, to um, theory because you managed to identify that the theoretical approach people were, were following didn't quite work and needed, you know, revisiting. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And those are the three prongs that, mm-hmm. you know, are necessary for to underpin like a really, really strong PhD. And you take them all and not just in a small yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Yeah, I mean... Uh, yeah, I think the the I'm still I'm still I'm still I'm still caught up on the the the, the massive changes you brought about, and I think what that means in Zimbabwe, knowing you know how HIV is a big deal in sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. and the impact of your work, and um, I can just imagine in terms of even of your career where you get asked to speak and contribute in you know to knowledge, that must be something quite amazing. I think I'll touch on that um in the toward the end because um I want to yeah, still ask. I can, I can. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Nothing. I can talk about that project in my sleep. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm pretty sure of it, and um and I do hope that you know uh it's gonna yield a lot of returns and open a lot of doors for you. And I'll ask about it again um just to, as in the last question. But I think before we get to that, um I might want to just ask about um. In, do you think, you know, being a Zimbabwean woman made your ex- experience unique in a particular way? Were there any, when you look back on your journey, were there any challenges that you inqu- um, encountered, um, you know, the reality of studying a PhD in this particular field or maybe distance learning as a young mum and all of that? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good question, Linda. I think, like, you're saying that the, the, the first thing is being black Zimbabwean mm. woman um, studying at a tertiary institution in the UK, which is, you know, like right now, I think in the time where we're talking about decolonizing global health, in a time where people are talking about, um, you know, the need to have representation and, and I'll, I'll, I'll share, and my, my, and I've, I've been fortunate that I've worked primarily with women, like I can tell you all my supervisors were women, so I didn't necessarily feel, um, I was supported and I didn't feel that, that I had to aspire to get into rooms because they understood and they equipped me. Um, mm. And they put me in rooms. Like you're saying, you never know who put you in rooms. I, I literally remember going to a meeting with high-level officials here in Zimbabwe and my boss saying, she's the one who's in charge of this project. She will speak. So I was fortunate enough to have people who were supportive around me and I do encourage any other woman to do the same. Um, to allow women to speak, to mention the names of women. Mm. Um, and I remember um, when I did my my upgrading, um, where, you know, there were all these changes with my examiners, that broke me, and I cried in the bathroom for an hour before I was told the outcome of my upgrade. And and I, I went back, and I was in tears. 
and I was I had never been that vulnerable in my life. I, I'm a high achieving person and had never had to defend myself. I, I always knew that if I work hard enough, I'm going to fail through. And this was the first time that people challenged me. And they said, your methods are not going to be enough. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to do that. And I cried. And I remember afterwards, my, my, my boss um, said to me, girl, you're going to need to toughen up mm. because you're black and you're African and no one is going to hand you anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have to work and you're going to have to fight. And appearing vulnerable is not a good look. Um, and that was the first time that I was like, oh, okay, um, things have changed, <laughs> right? And again, like you're mentioning, there's, there's all these added responsibilities. I think I'm fortunate to be in Zimbabwe where I have a lot of support. Right now, my son is with my mom and he's well taken care of. For a lot of women, that's not the case. Um, for a lot of women, they're trying to juggle childcare and education or childcare and work, and there isn't a lot of support around them. We don't get the same classes that men get. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also for me, dealing with that mother's guilt while also being very passionate about my work was really, really hard. And I, and it's something that I still face right now, that I'm away from my son. And I, like, I'll, I'll make sort of justification for it, but the, the mother's heart wants to be, you know, with her son. Um, and, and I've had to sort of work through that for myself. And then the other thing is men in Zimbabwe often... Um, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of issues. There's, I'll, I'll Patriarchy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I did go to an old school where we were very empowered. Mm-hmm. And so I came out of that already very sure of myself. Um, but I have been in rooms where a director of a whole organization will say that a woman's place is at home taking care of the children. Um, and I have been asked by men, do people take... like? Oh, you have this role. Um, you're running this project. Um, do people listen to you because you're a woman? Like you're a woman. Do people actually listen to you? Um, and it's you know it's hearing those things. And I'm 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 fortunate enough to have a foundation that I can you know just brush them off and get the job done. But it's it's not often the case for a lot of people. And a lot of the times it's those barriers that stop you from getting in the room. Mm-hmm. Fortunately for me, a lot of the time I'm already in the room and it doesn't really matter whether you say I should be at home or not because I'm here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, women do face significant barriers and it's it's a lot of work to, 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 to bypass them. And as, as women, we should support each other, but also as men, we should also be supporting women. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about men being allies in these spaces. Because I connect mm. to a lot of what you said. So when I finished my first degree, um, I've had such a career change in my life. But uh, my first degree was in hospitality. And I moved back mm-hmm. to Switzerland at the time, bright-eyed, thinking, you know, I'm going to go smash it in Zim. Um, I think I talked about this in one of the first episodes. Went around looking for a job. And they kept saying to me, A, you're a woman. You're too young and you're overqualified. Mm-hmm. There was this particular hotel in Zimbabwe. Mm. We mentioned, really good hotel. And they basically said, look around. Do you think these men will listen to you? You've got all the qualities. And I had come from Switzerland having worked in five-star hotels. So I knew what I was doing. I could come back and, you know, influence wow. things in a particular way. Do you think these men are going to listen to you? They're not going to take orders from you. And they were very willing to let wow. me go at the, you know, at the cost of pride and, you know, and, 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 exactly. and so on. Things I could have come in there and helped change things around for them you know, introducing new ways of doing business, which would have, you know, obviously increased their profit margins, but they were willing to, to forego that over, you know, um, 
people's egos and the sort, yeah. which can be quite, quite frustrating because even here in the UK, how many times, I think I've mentioned this a few times, we've been mistaken as the tea girl at conferences, where me being wow. a black woman, at, I think all the conferences I've been to in my academic life, I'm always the only black woman. And being very young, wow. right now, even in my team at work, I'm the youngest. And um, a lot of people who perhaps report to me are my dad's age. Mm-hmm. And that is very, very challenging sometimes having to deal mm. with, you know, being respected, being seen for my skills, you know, and people, exactly. it's almost like you have to work double, double the amount as ev- that everybody else works to be a seen and then to eventually be taken seriously and to be accepted mm-hmm. in that room, which is really, really frustrating. Yeah. And then I think the other thing that you mentioned was, um, you know, the vulnerability around being challenged. And I think that's really important mm-hmm. having come back from very high achieving, you know, backgrounds, Arundel, everybody, you know, depending, no matter what state you were in, um, in general, that school, you know, generally breeds a lot of high achieving women. And a lot of us have this walk away with this, you know, ego as well, you know, where we feel like we are, you know, no untouchables. And I remember mm-hmm. being humbled on the PhD journey, like you, at um, we call it transfer <laughs> instead of upgrade. And I'd just gone through a really big heartbreak at that time. Um, and um, I didn't pass my transfer, actually. And they were like, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, we are either, we're either going to put you on an MRES, so for the audience, mm-hmm. Masters in Research, or you're going to have to resubmit your um, transfer and figure this yeah. thing out because the way you're going, whatever methods you're using, everything is not working. And like you, I broke down because I never heard that, you know, I wasn't always like yeah. an A student, but I mean, I used to always, working hard was good enough for me. I would always find my way. But this was the first time where working mm-hmm. hard was not enough. There had to be, you know, another element, another, you know, bit of grit that I had to show up in that room. And I remember fighting and saying to them, I can do it. It took, um, I remember um, after that, I went on a bus ride. I just bought a day pass ride, a day day pass, yeah, bus ride around Bournemouth. Just went round and loops mm-hmm. with a stress ball. <laughs> I just don't know what to do. And then I spoke to my dad and I decided to go back home for a few months. Like, I think it was about two months mm-hmm. where I just needed to take a break. And at that point, I was ready to give up. My dad was the one who actually said, we don't quit here. You go back and yeah. show them. I resubmitted that transfer. And from there on in, there was a new grit in me and I've never looked back. But I think, mm-hmm. I, like you, I needed that moment to challenge me and to to show me that exactly. you know, life is not going to be given to you on a silver platter. And as a black woman, you have to show up double time. You don't just show up. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more mm-hmm. that's, that's expected of us. I think just to highlight from what you're saying is that a lot of a PhD involves criticism. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I had to learn to deal with. Like the whole process is actually refinement, mm-hmm. right? It's like panel beating something. So you send a draft, it comes back with comments. You send another draft. You have like drop eight, and it's it's nothing personal. Yeah. I think that's the other thing. It's 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 you have to detach yourself from it being a, a criticism on me, but it being something to make your work more robust. And and I struggled with that because, like you're saying, it was always kind of like if I do my best, I can get by, yeah. right? And here, if I work, I can get by. And here, I was applying myself and having to apply myself even more, and having to do this over four years, and and. It was tough. Um, it was new, um, but I think it's it's also a big part of doing a PhD is that like you you learn to to take contributions from others. <laughs> I yeah. don't know if that that's the right the way we need to put it. And that's true because also I think the other challenges um, it connects to what we we're saying earlier on. It's your baby. 
So imagine someone criticizing your son. Nobody's mm. ever going to take that. You're not going to take that line down, you know? So there's a part of you having to almost yeah. set aside your ego and accept that these people are not attacking me. They're not attacking, you know, something that I love. They are trying to refine. They're trying to grow this. And as much as, you know, we discipline our children, etc., that's that refinement process. And I've seen it come into play more and more now as an academic myself. Last week, I had to chair um, a um, transfer, so an upgrade, which I've had to do a few mm-hmm. times now. And mm-hmm. having a, a PhD student as well, where I have to now give feedback. There, it was a hard mm-hmm. one last week where I had to make a really difficult decision for um, um, yeah, the, the, the student who was across the table. And I felt so bad, but I also knew deep down that in the long term, this would be good for them. Because if I just let them go through at this very critical point, I'm setting them up for a really difficult viva where actually they could wind up failing yeah. the whole thing. So better I play bad cop today, such that, you know, they can have an easier journey. And even with our supervisors, as you were saying earlier on, that you have what, you had one who was, you know, a bit easygoing and one was a little tougher. You will have bad cop, good cop. And you need a bit mm-hmm. of that, you know, to, to get you through. So you need a bit of, you know, yeah. toughness, tough love. And then there'll be someone who'll be there like, you can do it, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm just looking at our at, at our time and I think maybe I'll just wrap it up with um one one or two last questions or I'll wrap it in one mm-hmm. question. So now that you've finished your, your PhD and um you're now fully into your career again, without any distractions per se, you know, what are perhaps your, your future career aspirations? What are you looking to do? And what are the perhaps parting tips you might want to share with the audience and anyone who might want to follow in your footsteps? Um, okay, um, so I'll, I'll, I love what I do. Mm. So after um, I finished my PhD, my PhD was focused on sort of HIV testing. I moved on to a conception reproductive health for adolescents and young people. And um, that sort of expanded my 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 base in the sense that I I always worked on this HIV and now I was looking at SRH and I have grown through that. And again I started this before finishing my PhD so it's it's almost a year into no, two years into that. Um but but moving forward I do think that I, I want to continue to grow. Um and, and I don't know what, what that means exactly but I while I've always wanted to live and contribute to Zimbabwe, I do think there's a lot to gain from seeing what's happening outside of Zimbabwe and how other people run things, just because it's very easy to make excuses when you're always in the same place and that's mm. all you see. So um, I am hoping to work on more sort of international projects or projects across other sub-Saharan African countries Um and, and learn, you know, across that. I do want to get a bit more policy and sort of leadership experience. One of the things that was thrust upon me in my PhD and my job is we, we have all, you have to lead people who are sometimes older than you, um, but we don't have any leadership training or like actual leadership mentorship. And, and that's something that I, I do want to work on. Um, parting tips would be, I think, a lot of the stuff that, that we've already said today. So, number one, if you're embarking on a PhD or working on a PhD, I think your supervisors really matter, and I think the relationship that you have with them is really important. Number two, people really matter. Um, never take for granted where you can speak. You're talking about conferences, you pretend, or like whatever opportunities you get to go to speak 
whatever person you interact with, you never know when you're going to cross mm. paths with them again. One of the consultancies that I'm doing on now, I got because I was really curious about a project that was running in Bari. And so I went and I was like, oh, I'm here. I just want to see what you, you guys do. Um, and, and a year or two later, I'm, I'm, I'm consulting on one of the projects. So people really matter. Speak to as many people as possible in your field. Um, number three, um, I, I do think working on something, particularly for a PC, that, that's important to you is really, really important. It's, it's like you're saying a whole baby. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't do it on something that doesn't interest you because surprisingly or not surprisingly a lot of people do drop out of the <laughs> um right drop out rate is real <laughs> exactly and i think that's one of the ingredients to avoid that is to really work on something that you're passionate about and something that that means a lot to you um as as women i would say that keep supporting each other i never never take small things for granted right so if you can Talk to somebody, if you can mentor somebody, if you can encourage somebody, it goes a really, really long way. I am where I am today because of a lot of women who gave me a chance, a mm. lot of women who allowed me to dance, a lot of women who shared their journeys with me. Um, you you find that you're not alone in, in, in doing a PhD. A lot of the times I felt like I'm the only one who's going through this or I'm really scared or I don't understand this. But once you... Share with people who share with you, um, it makes all the difference. So never be afraid to share your story. And also, punch high, right? Like, it's, it's like you're saying, I didn't think my PhD was going to lead to WHO guideline changes. I thought, okay, I'm doing research in Mangwe, which is like the dip of rural Matepele land. And I would drive there every week on the dust road and share the road with cows, goats, chickens, children, everything. <laughs> snakes everything um and i was you know getting my hands really really dirty um but that research had a great impact mm. and that impact is you know being written about by voices published in high impact journals and so you know if you focus on what you're passionate about if you work hard if you put in the time a lot of it will be recognized and don't give up very easy to want to give up but don't give up Indeed. I think those are wonderful words of wisdom and um, nuggets that a lot of our audience can take away and use in their life. And in particular, this idea of helping each other up, uh, which is the premise of this whole podcast, um, handing, you know, hand me down, handing a hand to other women and just helping each other in this particular space. You're not alone. Um, we are all together on this journey. And if you have listened to Chido's story and you are particularly interested, I don't know if Chido is happy to engage, but she's got a strong presence on Twitter. So we will link her Twitter handle um, on the poster that will go up on Instagram and on Spotify, etc. So do follow her um, and listen to her journey as well. But um, I'd just like to wrap this up by saying thank you so much, Chido. Um, this is, episode has been brilliant. Um, it's been such a joy to listen to your journey, to listen to all your achievements and to just, yeah, be here in your presence as humble as you are with all your achievements and i can only wish you the very best in everything that is to come <laughs>